Just want you to know that. Okay, take your Bibles tonight and go with me to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 14. As we turn to this passage of Scripture, I'm going to do my best to, just to unfold the passage tonight. And uh, as we will unfold, I'll unfold the first part of the passage. I'm going to kind of give you my direction and how I'm doing it. Because if you're not careful and you're looking for tonight three, like three points in a poem or something like that, you know, like a homiletical style of message, you're going to be in trouble tonight, okay? Because you're going to be wondering, where is he going with this? Uh, I'm going to seek to unfold what it's saying here. And in many ways, I'm so thankful for Pastor and his teaching on Wednesday nights because that inductive approach tonight is going to look somewhat similar in this message. Now, tomorrow night's message, it's going to be totally different. So I'm going to try to throw you for a loop a lot, you know, to kind of keep you alert and uh, how I would preach it. But I will say tonight, it's one sense, it's kind of a message uh, upside down. In the very end, I'm going to funnel down to the final point. And, and really, if you're taking notes, it's going to be, end up like one final point, you know. And so I'm going to say, here's the point. And you'll know when I'm saying, here's the point, because I'm going to say, here's the point. Okay, so that'll kind of be easy. But I'm going to work my way to that direction. Now, you can take notes on a lot of things, but just kind of letting you know, that's kind of the direction the message is going tonight. I want to read the passage. And this passage, each night I'll read it, and then I'll preach another section of it. And I'm telling you, you don't want to miss any of them. I mean, this is, this, is, this is great word, and it's a message from Christ himself. It's considered even one of the hard sayings of Jesus. There were times where Jesus preached that it was just like, whoa, that is some tough stuff. And this is considered one of those hard sayings, and I'm so thankful for the passage of Scripture. Notice Luke 14, verse 25. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it, Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, Jesus says, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. And then he concludes his message, and here's what he says. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now this is an amazing message by Christ. And so as we seek to unfold this, you can only imagine, as you've seen multiple times in this passage, you cannot be my disciple. I think we're getting a clear, per, clear understanding of what he's really preaching on. Really, tonight's message, the title of the whole series, you could say, is this, the true cost of real discipleship. What does it really mean to be an authentic follower of Jesus? And this brings us to the very core of who we are, and even the very core of Christianity. So my prayer is that God will use this in a very special way. Let's pray and ask God's help. Lord, tonight as we go together on this journey in Scripture, I pray that you would empower me 
Lord, again, we just pray that you would use this message to draw people to yourself. Lord, we know when Christ is lifted up, you'll draw all men unto you. So God, tonight I ask that you would help me to best lift you up, to, to point people to Christ, those who are lost, that they would come to understand who you are as Savior and King. And I also pray, Father, for not just for those who are in Christ or who, are, who need to come to Christ, but those who are already in Christ. Will you, God, stir our hearts? Will you, will you allow this passage of Scripture to so, to so impact us in a powerful way that by the time the week is over, it, it will almost go through our blood veins? Lord, just, we just ask, would you please stir us and work in us? And will you use me tonight in a very special way? Thank you, God, for what you'll do. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. It was a number of years ago, I was in Italy and on a mission trip, and we were right outside of Rome in a town called Aprilia, and it was very evangelistic in the things that we were doing, and I remember specifically uh, preaching a message that dealt with, that dealt with uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, just how you're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. It's the only way to be saved, and as I'm, as I'm going through that passage, an Italian lady uh, at the end looks at me and comes up to me with tears in her eyes, and she says, I've gone to church all my life, and I have never heard that before. Um, you can imagine the, the, the sense around being near Rome and just kind of the, the nature of that. And she, she had gone to church. She says, I've always known I'm supposed to believe in Jesus, but, I, I, but, I, but I've been told I'm supposed to do the sacraments and I'm supposed to you know, keep the commands and those kind of things. In other words, to kind of earn my way, but it's evident you're saved by grace uh, alone in Christ. And I said, you understand the message. I had a big smile on my face. With, and, and yet, and, it, and I said that the very next day we had a meal with her. As we had this meal with her, I finally just kind of asked her, ma'am, at this point now that you understand the gospel, what's holding you back from trusting in Christ alone? And she paused and she said this, I'm too afraid of what my religious family might do to me if I convert to true biblical Christianity. She cared more about what her her family thought than her friends. Actually, within that church, there were some, some Muslims that were coming consistently. had been one lady named Lena who had been coming to the church um, faithfully for over a year. And I asked Lena, too, the same question. Lena, you understand the gospel, don't you? As I walked her through it, she said, yes, I do understand the gospel. What's holding you back? She said, I'm too afraid of what my Muslim family might do to me if I convert to true biblical Christianity. Now, praise the Lord, it was some months later, she actually did come to Christ. And then it was like, then I think her husband and her family, it's just kind of neat to see how God was at work in there. So in one sense, there are people who consider too more of their family and those kind of things than Christ. What does he say and do? And um, they care more about what their family thinks. I remember having a cola war um, one of these times and I'm preaching the gospel. I come to the very end. At the end of the Cola War conclusion, I, I kind of invite them at the end, hey, if you want to come talk to somebody, we have, we have trained counselors. And a teenager in the very front row, he stood up. I mean, he's been, he kind of responded and wanted to go talk to someone. And right as he got up, his friend grabs his shoulder and pulls him down in his seat and says, what are you doing? At that moment, the, he's looking at his friend, and then he looks up at me, and he looks back at his friend, and he looks up at me, and he looks back at his friend, and then he just drops his head down, never to respond to the gospel that evening. I thought, you know what's interesting? He cared more about what his friend thought than what God said and what Christ said. And so the reality is, in many ways, these go right along these illustrations with this passage. Now, I want you to see this, because in verse 25, we see that Jesus is very, very popular 
At this moment in his ministry, I already told you he's a miracle worker upon miracle worker. I mean, amazing. I mean, even the book of John tells you he did so many miracles that the books of the world at the time could not even contain all that he did. I mean, this is a miracle worker of miracle workers. And then he's preaching and no one preaches like Jesus. So he's got massive crowds. Hey, Jesus is in town. Let's go see him. And so the reality is, is all these people show up. But notice this, if it just said there were crowds, that would be a lot of people. But it doesn't say that. It actually says there were great crowds, which means there are so many, many, many people hearing Jesus. And here he is with this massive crowd of people, a very much people inquisitive, but not saved. My question to you would be this. If you have a massive crowd of lost people, what message would you preach to them? Would you preach to them um, how to read your Bible better? How to pray better? Would you preach to them how to have your best life now? Becoming a better you? I mean, if you're a false teacher. What would you preach? I think you'd make the gospel very plain and clear, wouldn't you? Because apart from all, from the gospel, and apart from true salvation, then really what does the message mean at that point with all these massive crowds of lost people? Again, what would you preach? And I think what you'll see is clearly Jesus is preaching the gospel. At first glance, you might read this. And actually, there were times in my life I'd kind of read this, kind of just at first glance and not really considering the context of this. And I just, you know, oh, you got to go deeper with the Lord and be a better follower of Jesus. But when you begin to look at this closely, this is a clear gospel message that Jesus is going to be giving. And yet it's a double-edged sword. It hits the believer and unbeliever the same. I mean, it's amazing how God uses his message. But notice this, he turns to the crowd. And he begins to speak to them. Notice verse 26. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, wait a second. He uses the same kind of phrase in verse 27. You cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, the same thing. He cannot be my disciple. So you start to see the theme of his message clearly is there. The discipleship, the idea of being my disciple. Now, <coughs> the question is this. What does it mean to be his disciple? Because some people, if you if look at Scripture, in one sense, if you're going to look at the word disciple, it can simply mean a follower slash learner. I mean, that's what you do. You kind of follow somebody else. But let me also say this, in Scripture, not everybody in Scripture that the word is used in disciple or discipleship is, is actually a Christian. You had actually Pharisees who had disciples as well. So in one sense, you could say the blind were leading the blind. But the reality is, is what does it really mean? And what does a true follower of Jesus even look like? Because I would suggest to you that it would be really odd for you to come up to me and say, Hey, Jeremy, um, I'm a Christian, but I don't follow Jesus. Now, if you told me you're a Christian and you don't follow Jesus, I, I might kind of start to smile at you a little bit and say, Well, then, let's just be real honest then. Then you're not a Christian. You say, Well, that's kind of harsh, isn't that, Jeremy? And I'd say, Well, no. Jesus said in John 10, he said that my sheep, they hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. That's what true sheep do. 
They know the shepherd's voice. And they actually follow the shepherd. And he knows them intimately. He knows them personally. And then he says he gives them unto them eternal life. He places you in his hand. And again, they're in the Father's hand. And no one can pluck them out of my hand. He says, that's that passage in John 10. But true sheep follow the shepherd. That's the characteristic of a genuine follower of Jesus. They follow the, the shepherd. So in one sense, you can't seem to dissect this. The other side it would be this. As you look at the word disciple, we have to kind of realize something in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels. The word Christian is not found. Did you know that? You would kind of think out of all places that the gospel should have the word Christian in it. But it's not till after the death, burial, and even resurrection, and then after even Pentecost and the birthing of the church, and you, you kind of work your way through. It's Acts chapter 11. That's where it is in, histo- in history, you could say. Acts chapter 11, verse 26, where the disciples are first called Christians, where? In Antioch. Remember that? So now you, you have this reality of, in that case, a genuine disciple is a Christian, or a Christian is a disciple. You wouldn't dissect the two. You know, and sometimes people think, well, you become a Christian, and then maybe then later you follow Jesus with your life. What are you talking about? And so the reality is you begin to look at this passage, and are you noticing something? Verse 26, if anyone comes to me. What does it mean to come to me? Now, I want you to take your Bible, and I want to show you this. And it's John. Go to John. John chapter 5. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John chapter 5. And as we turn to John 5, we're going to see a passage here. Notice verse 36. Jesus is having one of those confrontations with the Pharisees. And in John 5, verse 36, we have this saying. He says, Jesus says to them, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. He's speaking of John the Baptist. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. In other words, if you want to know who I am, watch what I do. I am doing miracles to show you who exactly I am. He goes further. Verse 37, And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, and his his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. I mean, you're rejecting the very one who he sent, which is me, he's saying. This is Messiah. And so at this point, what does he say? He says in verse 39, You search the Scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Now, growing up, I remember memorizing that verse, thinking that's a good verse to remind me to search the Scriptures. (laughs) But actually, that's a scathing rebuke to the Pharisees. You think you got it. You need to go back to what you think you know, which is the Scriptures, because you don't know them, because they testify of me. That's pretty scathing. But notice verse 40. Yet you refuse to, here's the phrase, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. See, Jesus is saying, listen, you, you're not coming to me, and so therefore you don't receive life from me. And yet in the other passage, what is he saying? If anyone comes to me, he's calling people, come to me. This is a gospel call. Massive crowd of lost people. 
And this is, this is clearly calling people to come to him that they would receive life. And so when we kind of see this, we're kind of getting this foundation that this is what it means to be a genuine disciple of Jesus, a person who's going to actually come to him. And you come to him not on your terms. You come to him on his terms. And so when you begin to kind of look at this, go back to, to, John, or go back to Luke chapter 14. And again, I'll kind of have you keep going back. So you might want to little, put a little ribbon there or something like that if you got it to mark it off. But watch this. Here's the shocker. Verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. <laughs> oh, what? What? What are you saying, Jesus? Like with a massive crowd like this, could you imagine the disciples' reaction? Is all of a sudden Jesus is preaching this, and you're like, wow, you're almost like, eh, no, not that message. I mean, oh no, I mean, you're going to lose the whole crowds. I mean, you, oh no, you know, what is, oh no, this is, like, did he mess up? You know, because sometimes preachers have bad days preaching. I mean, you study, you kind of get on, and you try to communicate, and, and, and it's like, and then you're like, man, I'm not sure what I said. I don't know if anyone else understood anything either, because if I don't know what I'm saying, you know, that, that you can have that, or you can miscommunicate, you know, maybe he had a bad day. Maybe, maybe he lost power at midnight on Friday night in his RV, or something like that, you know what I mean? <laughs> Praise the Lord, I found the other plug. <laughs> um... But so you kind of say, did he have a bad day preaching? But let me remind you, Jesus never had a bad day preaching. He always meant what he meant and he said what he said. The problem was never with the preaching. The problem was always with the hearing. So you have Jesus who's communicating this, but again, a shocker of a What? What is he saying? It doesn't even seem like a Christian message. Are you kidding me? To go hate my father and my mother and, and you know, my wife and children and then, then myself? And if I don't do that, I can't be his follower? What, are you, what in the world is he saying? And I will say, actually, as you start studying Scripture, you realize this is a shocker. What is he saying? Because I want you to go with me for a second, because if, again, if he starts off and says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, I think we ought to look at Scripture for just a second. Take your Bible. Now let's go on a fast journey, okay? Watch this. And go with me to the book of Ephesians, okay? Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1. Now, when I'm saying this, to be a true follower of Christ... You know, we're talking about hating your father and your mother. Now, maybe some of the teenagers in the room here right now are like, Jeremy, I, li I like this preaching. Yeah, go, man, you know? Cause, and I'm a real follower because I can't stand my parents or something. You know, maybe they're thinking that. <laughs> well, I don't think you get it yet. Okay, but hold on. You know. But as I say that, notice Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Probably some of the first verses you've ever memorized as a kid. Maybe your parents probably had you memorize this almost right away. But what is it? It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Which means to disobey is wrong. Okay, that's kind of easy to see. But notice this, verse 2. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise. What's the promise? That it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Now, wait a second. 
If I were to ask teenagers, hey, listen, how many of you want a longer life? Some of them might not, you might not say, I don't know if I want a real longer life because this is kind of like a horrible world. And man, just like the older I get, the more I'm like, eh. So you might not want to, but if I were to say, how many of you want a better life? How many would like a better, then you'd go, yeah. Now, how, how about if it was better and longer? And you'd be like, okay, I like that, you know. Well, the promise comes when you obey and you honor your parents. Now, again, if you love yourself, you won't really obey and honor your parents, will you? But you begin to consider obedience. Now, my dad used to teach it this way. My, my dad uh, came to Christ at the age of 26 and, and his life transformed. But he, he taught martial arts. So I grew up um, really competing around the country in martial arts and stuff like that, too. So it's kind of neat. But in the process of this, my dad, as a believer, was teaching us some biblical truths. And he said this. He taught us, obedience is doing exactly what you're told instantly and with the right attitude. Because in one sense, if you don't do exactly what you're told... You could say it this way, incomplete obedience is disobedience. And we see that with, with Samuel in the Old Testament and, and Saul. And what's this, what, you know, what is this bleeding of the sheep that I hear? Because they're supposed to utterly wipe out these, the wickedness of these people. But no, he chose to hold things back. He, it was incomplete obedience. Actually, not just that, exactly what you're told, but instantly. If you delay in your obedience then actually that is clearly disobedience. In other words, if your parents have to tell you, I've told you, or if they tell you more than once, that is actually disobedience. Now, how many times do they have to tell you to do something? We start looking at that, and then it would be this idea with the right attitude, which shows honoring, it shows with the right attitude. Now, as I say this, let me kind of draw you into this as well, because if you really honor something, how do you treat something you honor? You treat it very carefully. Now, here's what happened to me. I was preaching um, for many, many, many summers. We spent uh, up at Northland Camp in, in Dunbar, Wisconsin. It's kind of northeastern Wisconsin, uh, where Northland Baptist Bible College was back in the, in the past. And so we spent many, many years there. Actually, even this summer, we're going back to go help. And it's where the Melchers are kind of from that area and stuff, too, in a sense. And I remember as we kind of were, were there, I was speaking to the junior side. And I was in at night, and so I had my iPad. Actually, it was really helpful with the iPad. And I was making my way from the junior camp across this, this kind of field. It had some trees in it, but mainly a field. And it was at night. And so I'm making my way through. It's kind of eerie. I was by myself, you know. And as I'm making my way through, I could see my trailer in the distance. I could see like the awning out and the light on. There was a row of all these trees. And then there was kind of this cutout, you know, from one spot to the other. It was pretty wide, but the idea was kind of a pathway up that I could go right to where my trailer was. So I'm, I'm making my way to the trailer. And as I'm seeing this at night, you know, I, I walk through that kind of that path. It's pretty broad. And when I do, I, I, I felt like I ran into fishing line. I felt like I hit some resistance. And it, was that fish, and it wasn't fishing line. It was spider web. Yeah. <clears throat> That's why I always like when, you know, people are going to hike and they go, let me go first. And you're like, okay. <laughs> and clear out all the webs, you know. So anyway, when I walked this, I feel the resistance of it, and it wasn't like it was, but it was very strong web. And so when I felt the resistance, I'm like, oh, sick, and I'm kind of feeling like I'm wiping off ropes, you know? And I'm like, and then in my mind, you know how you sometimes have the things that kind of go back in your mind? And so in my mind, I'm all, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm thinking of a junior camper one time telling me, now you know, the stronger the web, the more poisonous the spider. 
Like, I don't even know if that's true, but the idea is like, I'm like, I'm thinking that in my mind. I'm like, ew, that's like a strong web. I mean, that, this is a poisonous, and then I'm like, that's a pretty broad span. That must mean it's a pretty big spider, you know? Now, can I just tell you this? I don't freak out with spiders naturally, okay? I really don't, but I also don't want them in my bed at night when I'm sleeping, you know what I'm saying? So when I, when I do this, I walk this, I wipe off these ropes, I'm kind of, how this stuff's going through my head. I look down at my iPad, and sure enough, on my iPad was the spider. It's got this big body, big old legs, and my just, that just kind of shocked me. And so my gut was, I go, ah! And I go, ah! <laughs> and right when I threw the iPad, I realized at that point, I came to my senses, like, what I had done. And literally, I saw him like, ah! And then I go, ah! Oh, no! Now, I know for some of you, you know, you get sick of your iPad, chuck it out the window or whatever, you know, get a new one. Not, not me. I'm like, that's expensive, you know. And so I'm like, so to throw that, I mean, the, the initial fear of just kind of, ah, and throwing it showed I didn't really honor respect. I just wasn't thinking. But the moment I came to my senses, I literally was like, ah, like that kind of response showed that I honored the iPad. In other words, that I considered it something that was expensive and even weighty, and you would be careful with something. So then I'm like, oh no. And I go look at the iPad. It's not flat on the ground. It's at an angle. And then I'm like, oh, so I kind of look underneath it. And sure enough, the spider's kind of in between there, the screen and the, and I'm like, oh. so I took the back of the iPad carefully and I went, <laughs> and smushed the spider. Then I flip it over, and now I've got guts and stuff, and I couldn't even tell if it was broken. So then I got stuff to kind of clean it off, and I realized, oh, the glass isn't broken. Okay. And then I turned it on, and it powered on, and I'm like, thank you, Lord. (laughs) But I say that to, again, remind us, how do you treat something expensive? You treat it really carefully. You get a new vehicle or a newer vehicle. Kids are throwing stuff out in the front. You're like, nah, go to the backyard. You know what I mean? Uh, the nature of this, and I would say too, if you really love your parents, Scripture would encourage you and challenge you to sure love and honor them. Now, you might say, well, Jeremy, is it ever right to disobey my parents? And I'd say, <laughs> yes, actually it is. Um, parents aren't like, Jeremy, what are you saying? Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, there's an element. If, you're, if, you're, if you come home from school and mom is really frazzled. You can, you can tell she's like, oh, something's going on. And she's so, she goes, I am so mad right now. You're like, what's going on, mom? She's like, the neighbor's cat keeps climbing on the car. And she opens up a drawer and pulls out a butcher knife and says, take the knife, go kill their cat, and go kill the neighbor too. <laughs> now, if she says that, you can disobey mom, okay? And <laughs> you'll probably call 911, help, my mom's crazy. You know? <laughs> Um, or if your parents say this, don't you ever trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior? Well, there's a higher authority that calls you to repentance and faith. And so you know what? You submit to the higher authority. But basically, kind of other than that, you kind of obey your parents and honor your parents. Let me remind you, you're going to have kids probably one day too, and they're probably going to act like you. So, <laughs> so it's pretty smart to do your best, you know, but the reality in all of that, I'm simply saying this, that if you really love the Lord, you would obey his command and you would show honor and respect for your parents and you would seek to obey them as you're underneath their rule. As you go beyond that too, let me just say this, it's not just parents, but look at chapter five and verse 25. What does it say? It says, husbands, love your wives. 
Now we've kind of dealt with the teenagers. Wait a second. Husbands, love your wives. Now remember, it's plural to plural. Okay, so it's not, hey, you husband, love all of your wives. You know, no, 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 it's not like that. It's husbands, love your wife, or you husband, love your wife. How do you love her? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might be holy and without blemish. Husbands are supposed to love their wives, and, and just like Jesus loved the church, Jesus died for the church. Let me remind you, he did not die for the church building. The building is really not the church. We understand that, hopefully. He didn't die for your church building. Actually, the church is the gathered group of the assembly of people, the believers. And yet here is Christ who died for the church. Talk about love. Hey, husband, do you, you love your wife? Do you communicate that love? How do you communicate that love? Hey, woman, I mean, I told you. <laughs> really? I think if you really communicated love, would Christ speak that way? How, how would Christ deal with the church? And yet you see the very love of Christ uh, and, and self-sacrificing of him on the cross? Really? So husbands, you're supposed to love your wife. Do you? Now wait a second. You know, it's not just that. See, in this passage, there's nothing about the wife that's supposed to love the husbands. So in one sense, ladies, you're good. No, 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 no. You got, there's other passages. Okay, now do this. Find the book of, of Titus. Can you find that? Just a couple pages over. You go through Philippians, Colossians. You know, then you got First and Second Timothy. Then Titus. Find Titus chapter 2. And notice verse 3. Now... Titus chapter 2 and verse 3. Here we go. Ready? In Titus 2 verse 3 it says, Older women likewise. Now I'm not going to tell you who that refers to. Okay? I've already got myself into trouble. You have got to figure this out on your own. Okay what I'm saying? I do not want to get beat up after the service by a bunch of ladies. Okay? But here it says in verse, in verse 3, older women likewise, huh, I'm kinda, <laughs> um, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. The older women in the church are supposed to model how to love your husband and love your kids, and they're supposed to teach it to the younger women. That's Scripture. Are we doing that? So in one sense, you begin to see that actually you're supposed to love your kids. You're supposed to love your parents. You're supposed to actually, you're supposed to, not just, you're supposed to love your spouse, but you're also supposed to even love one another. Now watch this. Go to John, and I'll go even faster, okay? Because, Jeremy, where are you going with all this? Okay, go back to John. You've got to see this. It's John, John chapter 13, okay? John chapter 13. Watch this. In John 13, we have another message from Jesus and Jesus is very, very clear within this message. John 13, and notice verse 34 and verse 35. 
It says this in John 13, verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Now, wait a second. That's not a new commandment to love. I mean, that commandment's like from the beginning. What do you mean love? But the idea is it's a new commandment in this way, that you love one another as Christ loved you. That you love like Christ. That's the newness of this. So you see this, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. That means this, if someone were to come into the assembly and just experience just a church service and to hang out a little bit, and if they're lost, they would be going, whoa, these people love each other. Look at the way they interact, how they seek to help one another. I want to be a part of that. I mean, all, they must be real followers of Jesus because that's characteristics of love. And Jesus obviously showed and demonstrated that. So you begin to consider this. Wait a second, we're supposed to do that. Actually, go to chapter 15. And look at chapter 15 and, and look at verse 12. In chapter 15, verse 12, he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Look at verse 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Are you catching this? It's pretty clear. It's like we're supposed to love one another. And that's, that would show our, our clear reality of a relationship with the Lord that we love one another. Actually, do you know even the Scripture commands you to love your enemies? Remember that passage of Scripture? I won't have you turn there, but it's Matthew 5, verses 43 and verse 44. He says this, you have, said, you have heard that it's been said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. What? Now, can I tell you, it is, it is so easy to love people who love you. But how do you treat the people that hate your guts? That want you fired at work? That's the neighbor that maybe just is like, you know, I was going to say rake leaves and throw it on your lawn, but do you have leaves? And Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they rake the palm trees. <laughs> the palm tree, I don't know. I mean, how do you treat people that just treat you so awful? Yeah, now you might even say something like this. <coughs> You might say, Jeremy, you don't understand. My marriage is really bad. Like, I live with the enemy. <laughs> that is bad. <clears throat> well, then love your enemy. Bless them. Do good to them. Pray for them. It'll probably, tra- it'll probably transform your marriage, actually. I mean, you begin to consider this. And so, so in one sense, you're like, what in the world is Jesus preaching and teaching by him saying hate? Because we look at all these other passages and we think of even the characteristic of God himself as God is love. You know, that's one of the, the chief attributes as we consider is who he is. I mean, so, so and the Christianity is, you know, other, other religions, you know, you know, convert or die and they sever your head maybe. But no, not biblical Christianity. It's like you're pleading with people to convert and yet kill me in the process if you need to. But I, I call you to Christ. And then this is what's so different. And now there's one more thing you get to see. It's found in 1 John. Go to 1 John. Okay. <clears throat> Sorry about that. 
First John. If you want to find First John pretty easy, find Revelation and go backwards and you'll find First, Second, and Third John. First uh, John chapter 2. Notice this. Speaking about the whole idea of even hatred. First John chapter 2. And look at verse 9. The Scripture says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Go to verse 11. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because that darkness has blinded his eyes. In other words, if you live in habitual hatred, the reality is you walk in darkness. You can't see straight. It blinds you. And we've seen that too. We've seen that even in a culture where like, you know, the past president or something like that, you know, where, where it's just such, sometimes such hatred. If the person cured cancer, you know, they'd be like, he's evil. You know, it doesn't really matter. And, and you can't see straight when you just have hatred in your heart. And the reality is here, it's like if you live in habitual hatred, you're in darkness. You're in darkness. To go even further, though, look at chapter 3 and look at verse 15. Chapter 3, verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a... And what does it say? A what? Everyone who hates his brother is like a murderer. You're a murderer. Watch this. And what else does it say? It says this. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You live in habitual hatred. You're like a murderer in God's eyes. Because that's where murder begins. It's from the heart. And the reality is... You don't have eternal life abiding in you. Now you say, well, wait a second. Are you saying that that a Christian can't hate? And I would say, no, I'm not saying that. I don't think the Scripture is saying that either. But I will say this. If you're really genuinely a Christian and you have this hatred towards somebody else, what will happen? God will so work on you and you realize, I can't live this way. Dear God, deliver me from this. I can't do this. I need your, because that's not Christ, is it? So there's this element of going, whoa, and yet if you live in habitual hatred and your life is characterized by that, then you ought to look to see if you're even a Christian because real Christians can't live that way and they should never live that way. And so you look at this and go, this is, this is again a shocker. Then you got chapter 4 and verse 20 and in chapter 4 verse, verse, verse 20, what do we see? We, we, we see this reality now where he says in chapter 4 verse 20, if anyone says, I love God... And hates his brother, what does it say? He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Don't call yourself a a real Christian. You're you're a liar. You don't really love God. Because if you did, you would love your brother. You'd even love your enemy. I mean, consider that in a even in a politically charged arena. Sometimes we forget, dear God, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, save them. Work in heart, save people. That's what our culture needs. It needs an awakening. It needs a real revival, doesn't it? 
So you begin to consider this and go, this is pretty radical because if Scripture condemning hatred and yet the biblical Christianity seems like, you know, it's about loving, then why is Jesus saying this? This makes no sense. If you're going to be my follower, you've got to hate your father, your mother, your wife, yourself, your children, even your own self. I mean, the idea is do you look at yourself in the mirror and in the morning wake up and say, hey, I'm talking to you, you know? Yeah, you, I hate you. And yeah, you quit looking at me that way. And you're just talking to yourself in the mirror? Is he really calling you to hate yourself? Like, what's this all about? And actually, you know what's amazing? In order to understand Scripture best, you always interpret Scripture with Scripture. It's, it's, one of the, it's, the, it's, just, it's the best. Watch this. As you begin to do this, find, find this passage, because this, this is the interpretation where you begin to see this in Matthew chapter 10. Go to Matthew 10, as we are getting ready to land the plane, I promise. Okay, Matthew 10. <clears throat> Look at verse 37. Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will actually lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will actually find it or save it. Are you catching the paradox here? Are you catching even the comparison? See, in this passage here, it's almost like, it's almost like word for word in many ways of the other passage. But here he doesn't say that you hate, but he says you, that you, if you love them more than me... And really it helps us to understand because Jesus using the word hate in that passage, he's using in their culture what's called a Hebraism. The idea there is using a way of comparison and actually it, it kind of shows you a strong comparison and a pretty extreme one. But, but he's not telling you go hate people because we're called to love people, aren't we? And yet we're called to love Him. When it comes to people, we're called to love Him that much more. In other words, we love Him supremely, and anything else short is actually like hatred. We just love Him so much more than anybody else. And if you're taking notes tonight, here it is. A genuine disciple of Jesus is a person who loves Christ supremely. They forsake all idols of human relationships for the one true God. It's like they're willing to, to, to say, it doesn't matter what people say or what people think, it I, because I care what God thinks, and I, I want Christ to rescue me. And they turn to Christ as their supreme love, as their supreme joy. They embrace Him supremely. Consider this, anything short of supreme love is actually idolatry. And He will have no idols He's calling you to forsake all idols for Him. All idols of human relationships. Now the question is, when you came to Christ, did you really do that? Or were you kind of saying, ah, sure, I'll kind of try Jesus maybe. Or maybe I'll just kind of pray the prayer. You know what I mean? It's like, you start realizing He's calling people to genuine repentance. Come to me, He's calling you to do. To become a true follower of His. And the reality is, is, if you do, the moment you get saved, let's think about this. That's the moment that the love of Christ is now shed abroad in your heart. And for the very first time now with the Spirit's empowerment, you're free to love people. 
for the first time. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. When you start working your way through the fruits of the Spirit and you realize, wait a second, this is all of the Spirit of God in me. And there's an element. Could you imagine if you really love Christ supremely? Let's say you and your marriage, both of you love Christ supremely. He was number one. What would happen? You're being drawn towards Him as you're being drawn towards each other as you seek to love Him supremely. Amen. It changes everything. In many ways, it's this way. If you love Christ supremely... Would, would you live in your sin? Would you view porn? Would you go after the culture if you love Him supremely? In one sense, this, this takes us to the very core of Christianity, the very core of the supreme, supremacy of Christ and the Lord. I mean, we should love Him supremely. There's nothing in comparison. And can I tell you this? At the moment you get saved, in one sense, you're, you're doing that as much as you know how. You're turning to Messiah, aren't you? And that love of God begins to be shed abroad in your heart. But do you realize that as a Christian, because some of you are looking at me tonight and you're saying, Jeremy, by God's grace, I've done that. That's it, amen. But you know what he's always doing? He's always testing our love, isn't he? And you think of the illustration of Peter. Uh, they might forsake you, but not me. Peter, let me remind you, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. What is, he, what is he saying? The commotion in the garden, and Peter tries to even defend Jesus. He feels probably empowered with that sword, but he's with Jesus. Some 200 plus soldiers, maybe, and upwards of 1,000. And yet as he goes and he tries to kill a guy... And, it kind of, and the guy dodges, it seems to cut off his ear, or cut his ear that way. And, and Jesus commands Peter to put away the sword and, and, and he heals an open flesh wound and all of that. Re- remember Peter, at some point with the disciples, they seem to flee. I mean, they're afraid of everything. And, and yet now here's Jesus being brought before a religious man named, named Caiaphas and he's being falsely accused that evening. And in the midst of that, there were some that seemed to kind of get close there. And Peter would have been one of them that seemed to be in that courtyard kind of seemingly wondering what's going to happen with this. And remember what happens in the courtyard? You've got someone says, hey, you're one of his, aren't you? No, I'm not. No, I, I, think, you, I think you are. Like you, you were in the garden. No, no, I'm not. A slave girl seems to say, yeah, I think that you were. Uh, uh, and he seems to curse. I am not. I, I don't even know him. But remember what happens, according to Luke, that Jesus is seemingly being moved within that courtyard at that moment. And at that moment, their eyes catch, Scripture tells us. Could you imagine as he's there and he's denying Christ, and then he says, I don't even know him. And he goes away and he's weeping bitterly. He can't believe. He hears the rooster crow. He, he knows exactly what just happened. He's... How could, I, how could I ever be used? The crucifixion happens. The, the death, that burial, the resurrection happens. You know, he's, they're skeptical. And what? what? And, then, and then they see the risen Christ and he tells them, go before me in the galley. I'll meet you there. And, and so what happens? They make their way there. And at some point, you know, they don't see the risen Christ. But Peter at that point is saying, you know, I'm going fishing. 
That's what he did for a living in the past. He was a professional fisherman. I mean, I guess I'm kind of a loser, but at least I can do something I like. Who's with me? I don't think at that moment he's like utterly forsaking Christ. He's just fishing. And he's fishing all night. And what do they catch initially? Nothing. Loser of losers. (laughs) And then he hears from the shore, cast your net on the other side. He's heard that before. Could this be? And they cast the net on the other side. And all of a sudden, there's so many fish. I mean, they fish all night and caught nothing. Now they're pulling. I mean, it's, it's, it's messing up the boats. And the, I mean, it's like this is crazy. They're pulling them in, in a sense. I mean, and they count how many? 153, which even tells you the specifics, the very specifics of that. They're counting them as they're bringing them. It's the Christ. Go. And they jump in. And, and he, he, I mean, it's Peter. He jumps in. He just swims back, you know. And he, there's Christ. He's there on the shore. He's, he's there with a fire there. And he's made breakfast. I, you kind of wonder in the risen form, how did he make breakfast? I don't know, maybe he just said breakfast, you know, and it's there. <laughs> but sure enough, they're eating with the risen Christ. They're... And what happens? Jesus says, Hey, Peter, do you love me? Oh, how piercing that would be. Um, and actually, what's interesting, I will say this there's a, there's a, a disagreement, and there's a struggle within the nuance of words. But, but I will say it is interesting within that same passage that he uses these phrases and, and, and just how he uses them, when he uses them. But he, he uses the word agape. Do you agape me? And Peter's response is, seems to be, I phileo you. It's seemingly, you know, like, uh, why didn't he use the same word? That's kind of weird that he wouldn't use the same word. But he just says, you know, I phileo you. And he says, well, then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me more than these? Um, and he uses again agape. Do you love me, Peter, that way? And Peter responds, a phileo, I phileo you. And then, and then what's interesting, then Jesus takes and changes his word to Peter's word, that seemingly a little bit of a lesser word potentially. And he just says, do you even phileo me? And Peter is just broken over that fact and responds to him. But the three times he actually betrayed him, now he's being restored and so you know what's crazy is that Peter probably hears the greatest joy knowing that one day he then will die for his Messiah. Jesus even tells him that at that time. And what's crazy, you consider this. I mean, he, he's long before to say, I would die for you. But, he, but no, his love is insufficient. What do you see? I am encouraged by that. How often we fail him. How often we sin. We so come short. At our best, we just can't do it. We need Him. We need Him all the time. And the moment we seem to kind of pull back is the moment we we clearly see failure. We need Him. And yet in one sense, if I were to ask you tonight as the conclusion of the message, do you love Christ supremely? I would think if we're honest, we probably won't say yes, but we would probably say, I long to. I long to. I just come short so often. And can I tell you this? 
when we as believers forsake all idols for the one true God and seek to love Him supremely, it is amazing the impact that God begins to do within our own relationships all around us. Because it's not about the relationships about us around us, it's really about Him, isn't it? So in the end, here's the question, do you love Christ supremely? Let's pray tonight. Dear God, we have labored in the Word tonight together. As we begin to consider Scripture, we realize uh, You have called us to love one another, to love our kids, to love our parents, to love our spouses. But God, so often we come so short because we don't love You supremely. We are so caught up in self-love. And then, Lord, we love and consider relationships so sometimes more than you. Lord, I think about how often we're, we're driven by what people think and the fear of man does truly bring a snare. Dear God, deliver us from that. May we love you supremely. May we forsake all sin and all selfishness, Lord, and turn to you. Lord, I pray for those tonight who maybe have never experienced true conversion of genuine repentance and faith in the Messiah. Lord, that tonight would be, would be clear that they would humble themselves and, and forsake all their idols and all their sinfulness and, and embrace you as their Lord and Savior, that they would love you supremely. But God, I also pray for us as believers who have done that in the past, who we've come to you, that God, tonight you would deal with our hearts. Lord, so often we as believers lose focus. We do sin. And yet, God, thank you that there is, there is one to, to go for us and between us and you, um, and that's Christ. And so, God, I pray that we would come humbly, we would confess and forsake idols of relationships. And, Lord, that we would maybe even tonight as you're dealing with us with love, maybe we consider our even relationships with people. Maybe tonight that you would deal with the relationships of marriage and heal even some marriages tonight as some would forsake sin and embrace loving Christ supremely, which then include loving their, their spouse, loving their children, children loving their parents. God, would you do a work in us that only you can do, that miraculous work of, of genuine love. Thank you, God, for when we respond to what you, what you tell us, that there is a transformation because of your power Lord, please, God, do a work in our hearts tonight that we would love you supremely. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, do you love Christ supremely? And yet tonight, I think, if we're honest, I I, want to say, I think most of us probably feel conviction. And in that sense, what does God want you to do? That conviction is drawing you to himself. It's his kindness speaking to you about forsaking sin and self and pursuing him. If you love him supremely, wouldn't you spend time with him consistently? Wouldn't you talk to him all the time? And it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a duty, it would be a delight? And there's, there's realms of this. This puts everything back in the right order. And so tonight, in many ways, I'm going to invite you to respond to this message. I'm going to have my wife just play through a simple hymn of invitation. As she does, would you respond to the Lord right now in your heart and your life? Would you do that?
Maybe tonight you would even specifically tell that to the Lord, dear Lord, as much as I know in my heart, I, I long to love you supremely. When is the last time you told him that you love him? Maybe tonight as God is dealing with you there, you would even say, God, would you help me? And when it comes to my relationship with people, I know you've called me to love people, loving even my enemies, sharing the good news, or loving those around me, my kids and my parents. And again, in and of ourselves, we just can't do it, can we? We come up short every time. The ones we say we love the most are those are the people we hurt the most. We're around them the most. We sin against them the most. So maybe tonight some of you would humble yourselves and get things right with your spouse or your kids or your parents or your siblings. If you really love Christ supremely, I think you'll deal and do that kind of business. Maybe even tonight God is dealing with you about your personal walk with God and how serious that needs to be and how, how shallow it's been. God changed me in this area. Now I will ask one more thing. How many tonight, maybe you're here and you're without Christ, maybe you'd say, Jeremy, there's never been a time where I've genuinely come to Christ as my Lord and Savior. And I just want you to remember me in prayer. I've prayed for some this morning, even this afternoon, but tonight, if God is speaking to you, say, Jeremy, I've never been saved yet. Would you pray for me about that? I really question if I'm in Christ or if I have been truly born again. Remember me in prayer, please. I won't point you out, but I'll know to pray for you just by an upraised hand. Jeremy, pray for me tonight. I don't think I've been saved yet. Please pray for me. And you'd slip your hand up and I'd know to pray for you. Pray for me, Jeremy. I don't know if I've really been saved yet. And this does concern me. Pray for me. And if that is you, please don't leave here tonight without saying something to one of us. I'm going to have Pastor come. He's going to close us out in prayer tonight. Thank you so much for listening so well.